0: How do we fly through the asteroid belt without hitting a space rock? Should we change the name for dark matter? And how far can we communicate with aliens? All this and more in this week's question show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the question show your questions, my answers. Now, as always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up. And I will answer them here. Now, just a reminder, we do this show every Monday at 5pm Pacific Standard Time live here on my YouTube channel. So if you want the full much longer episode, back and forth conversations with me and other people, you should definitely come and join us for the live show. And then of course, we then take the live show and edit it down, put in all the additional graphics and that becomes the question show. So if you're wondering like what is that open space thing that is open space equals question show. Alright, let's get into the questions. David Marsh. I've always been fascinated by these topics. One question that always comes to mind is how do you navigate through places like the Kuiper belt or the Oort cloud and avoid hitting things at those high speeds. This is another example where science fiction has ruined your brain. And I'm sure you're imagining like Star Wars or Star Trek, where you've got this spaceship that's flying through an asteroid belt and asteroids are tumbling around everywhere. And it's got to weave and dodge and be able to make it through this dense region. And that is not what space is really like, and that is not what the distance these different objects really are. Now, if you were going to fly through the asteroid belt, like if you take like a 100 meter object, on average, they're about 140,000 kilometers away from each other. So that's about half the distance to the moon. And so when we fly through the asteroid belt, it's not about like, are we going to run into an asteroid? It's about are we willing to spend a little bit of fuel to take a trajectory that might take us past an asteroid or two, so we can take some pictures. That is like the best case scenario, you have to go out of your way to find these things. Now, if you go out to the Kuiper belt, things get even worse. 100 meter objects are about one astronomical unit apart. So in this case, you're looking at objects that are the distance from the sun to the earth. You're not going to randomly run into these things. They are not a navigation hazard. Again, these are really difficult targets to reach. If you're gonna make a mission into the Kuiper Belt, you'll be lucky if you make a flyby of one object, maybe two when you think about say New Horizons that was able to reach two objects and like maybe it'll hit a third if it can, but probably not. Now, once you get out to the Oort cloud, then on average, these 100 meter objects are about the distance from the sun to Uranus, right? Like really, really far. Once again, you're not just going to be able to navigate around these things, you have to fly to one specific target. And obviously, the Oort cloud is gigantic and really far away. And we've never seen these objects directly out in the Oort cloud. We may never be able to we can only find them as they fall into the inner solar system. So space, It's right there in the name. It has a lot of space. Now at this point, I'm sure you've noticed the codes that are showing up above my shoulder. And these are your way to vote for your favorite questions in this episode. Let us know the kinds of questions that you think are cool, both the questions and the answers. So just go ahead and down in the chat below, type in the name of the Star Wars planet, and we will count those up and we will celebrate the person with the most votes next week. Now we took a break last week, so we don't have a vote for this week. But we will be there for next week. So go ahead and vote. Just post your the word down in the comments, either just all on its own or as part of a longer question. Go ahead and do that. Thanks. Doremo 10. Should we actively work to change the name dark matter to dark curvature since that's what we observe? I'll agree. Dark matter is a terrible name. It's like a name before you really understand the problem. Now, if we go all the way back in history, the idea of dark matter first arose when astronomers were measuring the rotation rate of galaxies. And what they found was that the galaxies were rotating too quickly for the amount of mass, the total amount of stars that's in them. In fact, based on the speed that the galaxies were rotating, they should have torn themselves apart but they don't, which means that there's more mass holding the galaxy together. And that stops it from actually flying apart, or gravity itself doesn't work exactly the way that astronomers think. And these are the two proposals that there's some kind of invisible particle that is holding the galaxy together. Or it's just a misunderstanding of how gravity works at the largest scales. The jury's still out which one it is. But to say dark matter, is to already give it a name and to categorize it. It's some kind of matter, but it might not be matter at all. It might just be gravity working in a way that we don't understand. So I agree. I'm not sure dark curvature is a better name. Because I mean, I see where you're going, you're sort of providing more space time that is curving space and causing these effects that we see. And then astronomers have then mapped out many other ways, they've seen the impact of, of dark matter in galaxy clusters in the cosmic microwave background radiation, they've been able to map it using gravitational lensing, like they know that dark matter is something. And I get a lot of these comments on the channel where people are rolling their eyes, and they're going dark matter, lol, astronomers are just making stuff up no, they're not. Go ahead. You measure the rotation rate of a galaxy. And then you count up the number of stars in that galaxy. And you will find that the answer does not compute that that galaxy should tear itself apart. So logically, you're going to try to figure out why it's not falling apart. And you will come to two conclusions. Either there's more stuff in there that we can't see, or we don't understand gravity. And both are perfectly viable. So you know, the analogy that I always like to use is that you are driving in a car and your car is making a funny knocking sound, and you take it to the mechanic and you say, My car is making a funny knocking sound, and the mechanic goes, "Flaw, dark knocking sound, right? I don't believe you. You car owners are just making stuff up, and then he turns on the car and he can hear the knocking sound, and he goes, Okay, right. Yeah, there's something here. I don't know what it is. And then you have a bunch of hypotheses, right? What if it's the engine and then you take the engine apart and you look and you realize that it's not and then you put it back together and you go, what if it's the transmission and then you take it apart, right? That is the process that astronomers are going through now they haven't just like made a number up. They haven't just gone like let's just come up with a new term funding, please. Right? They've made these observations and they can't explain them. And now they're trying to figure it out. So I would love a better name. And I don't know, like, because there is a collection of observations, all of which come together to tell us that there is more to the universe than we understand. And Like, obviously, right? Like, obviously, there is more to the universe than we understand. But specifically, there is more to the universe than we understand in this very specific way. So um, if you have some names, maybe you put them in the comments for better recommendations. But I think that most people like the terms cool, dark matter, dark energy, those are cool, mysterious, kind of fun. And you understand that this is a work in progress. This is a mystery that is under investigation. And over time, we will maybe, hopefully, discover an answer to it. Ankit Gusai, how far can we effectively communicate with current technology? Can we connect with a probe at Proxima Centauri, assuming we can send one there? our general radio transmissions move out in this sphere from Earth. And every year that goes by these transmissions have reached another light year of space in radius. And the strength of that signal falls off pretty quickly, like we wouldn't be able to detect ourselves if we were just a few light years away, that'll change when the square kilometer array comes online in the next decade or so and then you will be able to detect say air traffic control system at like 100 light years away or the cell phone in the pocket of an astronaut on Mars, which will be pretty amazing. But if you want to communicate with the target where you know exactly where they are, you don't send out a general transmission, you send a focused beam, a radio waves at the person that you're trying to communicate with. And we could absolutely reach Proxima Centauri with a focused transmission, we could reach hundreds of light years away from here. If we knew the planet or the star that we were trying to communicate with, and hopefully, vice versa. The issue with sending a probe to Proxima Centauri is not about can we send a message that the probe can receive? The question is, can the probe send a message back home? Because it's gonna be a small spacecraft, it's gonna have limited power, limited electronics on board, it's gonna be tricky to have enough compact power to be able to send a message home, but it's not infeasible. I talked to Avi Loeb, of course, who's behind Breakthrough Starshot and a bunch of other ideas. And he said that theoretically, these probes, even these tiny little Breakthrough Starshot probes, would be able to send a message back home that we could detect. The key is to have a big receiver. So the bigger the dish that you have the bigger radio dish that you have receiving the signals, the better chance you have of being able to communicate with the probe. Like when you think about some of the spacecraft that are out there saying new horizons, it is so far away from Earth right now, like out beyond the orbit of Pluto, that it is only able to communicate back with us at about a couple of kilobits per second. And that's not because it's not capable of transmitting faster. That's because we can only receive those transmissions with the size of dishes that we have, when you think about some of the big dishes that NASA uses, they're like 70 meter dishes. And even those are only able to receive a few bits per second from the spacecraft as it's flying away. And eventually it'll drop even slower than that. But it'll always be there to some extent. And so you just take that idea, maybe we're going to need something that is hundreds of meters across a space radio telescope, that is a kilometer across to communicate with the probes that we've sent to Alpha Centauri. Adam Kameniars, what near future scientific discovery will push us closer to the we are alone solution? I really like this question, because, like, obviously, the universe is gigantic, it is billions of light years that we can reach. And then many billions of light years beyond that, that we can never reach, but we can still perceive. And the question is, is there life in the universe and that life could be anywhere like you don't know that there isn't life at some corner of Andromeda. And it's so far away, and you'll never go to that system and you'll never scan or search for it. So the question is, like, what could we do to get some kind of answer? And this will come from statistics. So the assumption that astronomers make is that we don't live in a special part of the universe that the laws of nature that we experience here are the same everywhere. And so the force of gravity, the speed of light, the fine structure constant, all of the various laws of the universe that we experience right around here are the same halfway across the universe at every part of the universe. And then we're also not special. So we see stars around us, we see galaxies, we see planets around stars and a random distribution of white dwarfs, bigger stars, smaller stars. And if you went to any other galaxy in the universe, and you grabbed a cross section of that galaxy, you would see roughly the same kind of things. You'd see some planets, you'd see some stars, you'd see some Brown dwarfs, you'd see some black holes, they would just all be there. And roughly the number that you would find would be very similar to what we would have here in the Milky Way and would be similar in some other galaxies. So we're not special. And that is the key, that is the heart of it, is that if you can scan a wider and wider sphere around us here in the solar system, you can start to get a sense about whether or not there's life in the universe. So I'll give you an example, right? When the Louvre telescope comes online in a few years. Now the original idea was something that was like, say, nine meters across 15 meters across, that would be great. So a 15 meter space telescope that has a really powerful coronagraph and maybe a sun shield is capable of observing the planets orbiting around sun like stars planets orbiting around red dwarf stars, etc, with a level of precision that it can actually measure the chemicals in the atmosphere of that star. And we get to that point then you can know fairly well that there is or is not some kind of biological process that's going on on that habitable world that is filling its atmosphere with gases that tell you that there's life there or that you're able to see the presence of some kind of infrared reflection from whatever is the alien equivalent of plants. And then there would be the detection potentially of chlorofluorocarbons and other things like that. And so you can imagine future telescopes. And if and if Luvor can't do it, then a bigger version, a 20 meter version, a 100 meter version, a 100 meter telescope with the solar gravitational lens, a quantum telescope, at some point, we will have telescopes that are powerful enough to be able to observe the surfaces of other planets around other stars with a level of resolution that you go like, I can recognize the continents, I can see where the oceans are, I can see where the forests are, or weird, I don't see any forests. So we will have as our as our tools get better, we will build this expanding sphere of understanding of our place in the Milky Way. And as we go out, and we see nothing, If we see nothing at Proxima Centauri, we see nothing at Alpha Centauri, we see nothing at Bernard star, we see nothing at Wolf 359, we just keep going and going and going out and out and out we see nothing at the Trappists. Maybe we're 100 light years in radius, maybe we're 1000 light years in radius. And still, we're seeing these planets and we see nothing on them, then we go back to that idea that we're not special. So what we see here, in our local bubble is nothing. We can then map that out to statistically the rest of the years. It could be wrong. And so you're always going to have a chance, you know, you're going to have error bars, but that is the way that we will try to figure out statistically whether or not we are actually alone in the universe. And we'll never you, know, you can't prove a negative. And so we will never get to a point where we can decisively say we are alone. But we will get to a point where we will decisively say we've looked to a distance of 100 light years in all directions. We've looked to a distance of 1000 light years in all directions. And we don't see a single shred of evidence that there is life on any habitable planet in any of those star systems. That is achievable, I mean, not within my lifetime, not within your lifetime, but within the next couple of say 100 years, we'll get to that point. And so I think that question of whether or not we are alone in the universe will be answered statistically, in the next couple of 100 years. And again, like if you're watching this, you're going like, yeah, but you haven't checked every looking cranny. I understand. Right? If I tell you there's a 99.999% chance that we're alone in the universe. Yeah, but what about that point zero zero one? So you're saying there's a chance. And that's the way that we could get to if we are actually alone. Obviously, there's other things we could do take to, to a point where we know that we're not alone, we could find one example. And then we could use again, statistics to tell us how many life forms there are in the universe, we could receive a communication signal from aliens, the UAPs could turn out to be something. Uh, any one of those situations, we would then get confirmation that we're not alone in the universe. But if we don't get confirmation, then we'll have to work from an ever expanding sphere of not detection, to try and figure out what the odds are. If you like my answers to your questions, as well as other things that we do at universe today, consider joining our Patreon club, you'll get an ad free experience on Today.com for life. Even if you unsubscribe, you'll get ad free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. Thanks to everyone who's already subscribed and welcome to our newest members, Paul Duff, Peter Kirk, William M. Clemens, Wendell Broadwell, Greg Gadua, Hunter Dunk, Robert Ames, Philip W. King III, Gary Douglas, and Eric Fawcett. Join the club at patreon.com universe today. Tom Garcia, 300 to 400 years from now, will space voyagers from Earth still require microgravity toilets? Or will dietary modifications make pooping in space unnecessary? 300 to 400 years from now, like I've got to assume that we will have developed some kind of artificial gravity by then. Now, not Star Trek artificial gravity with inertial dampeners and negative manner, but spinning things. So you'll fly in your spacecraft, and it'll have some sort of rotating structure on board. And it will experience artificial gravity. And then you'll be able to poop in a toilet and flush it just the way you do down on Earth. And there's some great science fiction that covers this. I mean, they talk about this in interstellar, they have this in like Babylon five is my favorite example of spacecraft designed with some kind of rotating artificial gravity, they've got this central ship, and then they've got these large rotating sections around it that I guess the crew sits inside. And so sometimes you're in zero gravity, and other times you're in artificial gravity. The other way to do it is with the expanse. And that's through acceleration. And so if you accelerate your spacecraft at one g at 9.8 meters per second squared, it feels identical to you being in gravity. But to accelerate from 9.8 meters per second squared requires an enormous amount of energy. We can't do that today. Maybe we can do that down the road with fusion drives, which is what they describe in in the expanse. That would be amazing right, that you would be able to fly off to some location, you burn for half of the journey, and then you flip around and you burn to slow yourself back down. So if you haven't already watched it, definitely watch the expanse, because they do a really good job of letting you know, when people are in zero gravity, and when people are under some kind of, of artificial gravity, either through rotation, or because they're accelerating in their spaceship, I would assume that the astronauts would try to hold it, they would wait. Because being able to poop in a regular toilet is vastly easier than trying to poop in zero gravity. So that's how I think it would work. Adam, if we got a message from a faraway civilization clearly indicating don't do x machine learning, biotech, etc. What are the chances that we would actually avoid making the mistake ourselves? Zero like, if we got the message to don't do x without, like, really detailed explanations of how that goes horribly, horribly wrong, we would want to do it. And we would want to figure out why these people told us not to do that thing. Maybe it's like slightly more critical, but I almost guarantee that whatever we're told not to do, we will do a lot, right? <laughs> like, just think about telling, trying to, like, parent your kids, you know, like, don't do this. And you like, oh, that's, that's like the kid is just waiting for you to tell them what they can't do. So they can go and do that thing. There's an interesting idea, this idea of info hazards. And there's a great video from rational animations, I think, talking about this idea of of information hazards, that, that an extraterrestrial civilization doesn't need to invade us, they don't need to to show up with their ships and subjugate us and take our water, they can just send us a message. And that message can cause us to wipe our own civilization out. So the aliens can send a message like here's the instructions to build a machine and you read their information and the machine when built provides unlimited power. And it sounds like a good but you are obviously skeptical, because why would someone send you this information? How what harm could this do? Maybe this machine could actually cause some kind of problem. This is an information hazard that you risk the fate of humanity just by knowing this information. And then do you publicize this information that you've got? Do you let other countries around the world know the plans to build this machine? Do you hide it? If you let them know one of them's going to build it? It's inevitable. The more people who know this information, the more that one of them is going to attempt to build it. And so that seems like the most elegant way, if a civilization wanted to remove our potential rival is to just send them a piece of information that will cause them to ruin themselves. It's brutally elegant. And, uh, you know, there's been many science fiction stories that have have talked about this, an example where it turned out, okay, was contact, right? If you remember contact, we get this message, they say, build a machine, they're kind of vague on what it does. And so they go ahead and build it. Like, it's crazy, but they do. And uh, whew, good, good news, it just lets you travel to the Nexus and meet the aliens and join in the Galactic Federation, but it could also have generated a black hole and gobbled up your planet. You don't know which one it's going to be total explanation for the Fermi paradox if you wanted it to be Eric Edmund. One issue that I always have with understanding the cosmic microwave background is how can we constantly see it? When a supernova explodes, we see it as one event as the light passes Earth. So how is the CMB constant? Because every moment you are seeing different cosmic microwave background radiation. If you go back to the universe, like shortly after the universe, when the entire universe was opaque and then finally it's, things started to clear up and light could reach out into space, then that light has started this journey. And it's been traveling for 13.8 billion years and it's finally reached our detectors here. One minute later, the light that came from one light minute farther has finally completed the journey and reached our detectors. And so all of the photons that we see from the cosmic microwave background radiation have been traveling unstopped for their entire lifetime for the age of the universe so far, and finally reached our detectors. And I'll give you an analogy that will help you sort of understand this is like think about when you're walking in a really thick fog. And you can't see beyond a certain distance. And yet, if you move to a place that you couldn't see, now you can see, but now you can't see the place where you were. And that's because everything is relative to where you are. Um, Another example that I really like is that when you go outside on some nights, you can see a halo like this, this ring around the moon. And this ring is caused by ice particles that are up in the atmosphere, in the area where the moon is, and so the light is coming from the moon, it's being refracted off of the ice particles and coming to you. And the particles have a very specific angle, where the light gets refracted towards you. But the particles are all randomly jumbled around, they're all flying around in the air, they're rotating. So you're not seeing the ones that you're that you're not seeing. You're only seeing the ones that happen to be pointing perfectly towards you until you see this additional light. And then if you move a little ways away, you're seeing you're still seeing the same ring, but it's always being generated by different particles constantly because it's the sum of all of these particles shining light more likely at that angle than just in general. And so it's the same thing with the cosmic microwave background. You are seeing a brand new CMB, you're seeing the birth cry of the universe at a distant point, each moment that you see more CMB. JP, what are your thoughts on advanced alien civilizations potentially blocking outgoing radio transmissions so as to not be detected? Yeah, this is one of the explanations for the Fermi paradox that we don't see aliens because this time of sending radio transmissions in all directions out into space is very short lived. And civilizations will eventually move to point to point communication. We're doing this as well. Like back in the olden days, they would have these enormous transmission towers that would send out just massive amounts of power out into the landscape. And you could listen to the radio from some transmitter that was hundreds of kilometers away. And now, everything runs on fiber optic cables, things run on smaller fields, Wi Fi, uh, cell phone networks, things like that. And you can imagine a time when everything is hardwired, that there is no leak to electromagnetic transmission going on whatsoever. And we will effectively become dark. But when we're thinking about attempting to detect alien civilizations, we're not looking for the leaked radio transmissions of those civilizations. That's really hard to see. I mean, I mentioned this before that right now we couldn't detect ourselves from Alpha Centauri. Like it's, it's that small. It's only with a directed pulse that you would actually be able to see something. So we're waiting, we're hoping for some alien civilization to actually be pointing a gigantic transmitter at us. And sending us a message on a regular basis that we know to capture and listen. And so the civilizations that don't want to make contact will not be sending transmissions, and the ones who want to make contact will be making transmissions. And so that's what we're going to be counting on. Bravo 01 What's preventing us from creating an artificial magnetic field around our spacecraft as a means of shielding them from radiation? Yeah, here on Earth, we are protected by the magnetosphere of the Earth, we've got this gigantic spinning ball of iron and nickel that is interacting with the liquid metal and it serves as this dynamo that generates this enormous magnetic field that surrounds the Earth, it interacts with particles, both particles streaming from the sun as well as cosmic rays, and makes them mostly harmless we'd receive a fraction of the radiation that we would if we weren't protected by this magnetosphere. And so the obvious answer is, let's build one of these for our spaceship. And then we don't have to worry about radiation while we're flying around in space. And that sounds good on paper. And this is back to the theme of NASA thought of this. uh, Back in the 60s, that there are technical papers all the way back to the 1960s, where someone is saying, like, let's, build some kind of wire coil, put it around the spaceship, turn it on, and we will have a magnetosphere. And the reality is, is that it's hard, that you can generate a magnetic field, but the amount of hardware that's required to power the thing is more than the amount of weight that would be required to just put lead around your spaceship. Like if you just take the superconducting coils, the power system, the radiative cooling, the wires that are actually generating the magnetic field, all of the additional computers and hardware and all that kind of stuff, and you generate a magnetic field that keeps your astronauts safe, that amount of mass is more than just lead, just shielding. And that the most effective way that we know to be able to protect astronauts in space is protons, that the more stuff you can put in between you and the bad space, the better. And That means regolith, or metal, or water, all of those are effective. Like if you have one meter of water in between you and space, you are completely protected to space radiation. And so instead of really cool spacecraft with these artificial force fields, I'm imagining spaceships just made of ice, and you're inside them and you're protected. So that's probably the way things are going to go. Now, it could very well be that there's going to be a breakthrough in physics at some point in the future that someone's going to come up with a new, much more compact power system, better superconductors, someone's going to crack the code on this and everything will switch around. But every test that's been attempted so far, and there have been many, we report on them all the time on Universe Today, they end in failure. Um, in fact, there's an interview here on my channel with someone who won a NIAC award for for to investigate this, and hopefully she'll figure that out. 666 cordyceps 666 can an alien civilization, for example, in Andromeda detect the possibility of our planet has the ability to host life assuming they're having the exact technology as ours. Andromeda is really far away. Uh, It's 2.5 million light years away. We can't even detect the existence of planets in Andromeda. We don't have the technology right now to detect a Earth sized planet orbiting around a sun like star. Like we couldn't detect ourselves. Even if we were at Alpha Centauri, if we were just four light years away, we don't have the technology to be able to do that yet. Now, there are telescopes in the works that might be able to do that. For example, the extremely large telescope. This is the 39 meter telescope that the European Southern Observatory is building. And I can imagine other telescopes following on after that, like whatever Louvoir eventually becomes. That should be able to detect those kinds of planets, but we can't detect the planet like Earth around the closest star we definitely can't detect it in another galaxy and neither can they. But if they're more powerful, then maybe they could Bobo, logic. Is it true that the influence of gravity extends out forever? Gravity moves at the speed of light. And so we experienced the gravity from the sun about eight minutes ago, we're experiencing the gravity from Andromeda about two and a half million years ago. And we're experiencing the gravity from the edge of the observable universe, 13.8 billion years ago, but we are experiencing some gravity. And so the farthest things that we can see, like we can see a galaxy in the James Webb Space Telescope, this tiny little red dot that the light has been traveling for almost the entire age of the universe, we're also experiencing a tiny little bit of gravity from that galaxy. And so you are experiencing the collective gravity of every single thing that you can see, and can't see that is within the observable universe, which is pretty amazing to think about you're being pushed and pulled in all directions. All right, those are all the questions that we had today. Thank you everyone for asking them both in the YouTube chat as well as joining live for the show that we do remember every Monday at 5pm Pacific Time. Don't forget to vote put your comments down in the chat below and we will be able to count them up and celebrate the winner. All right, we'll see you next week. If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Josh Schultz, and Andrew M. Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.